Welcome everyone, this is Carlos from SeedCamp. I have an alumni uh, in the room, somebody who went to the same university as I did and also a good friend and mentor here at SeedCamp, uh, Dan Applequist. Since I already know when you went to school, uh, maybe <laughs> you can, we can start, as we like to do, with a little bit of the background to, to some of the stuff that you're working on, some of the stuff you have worked on, but maybe let's rewind back to the very beginning of, of your days at Carnegie Mellon and then sort of what you did right afterwards. Oh, yeah. Well, it's interesting. Um, at Carnegie Mellon, uh, where I was studying cognitive science, um, I created a fiction magazine as a student project because I thought, hey, I want to create a fiction magazine. Actually, it was a science fiction magazine. Sorry, a little bit nerdy. Um, and we, we, so I had the uh, idea that because uh, we had all these computers at school and we were actually networked uh, through the internet, which was a very in new thing at that time. This was like mid-80s, late 80s. So, we just, so I decided, well, instead of like doing a zine and, you know, uh, printing it at a copy shop and uh, distributing it on campus, maybe I could do a lot better and a lot cheaper. Um, by doing something typeset and then sending it out uh, over the internet. And in the end, we had about 4,000 subscribers in 1989 for a science fiction magazine that was, that was basically typeset online, uh, sent out over email. And, you know, the okay. internet was very store and forward at that time, so there was no interactive stuff. A lot of it was like you had to, you had to assemble the postscript document and send it to your printer in and stuff like that. 1989 terms, I mean, that was like a runaway hit, you know. Exactly, exactly. That was, um, we were one of the first online uh, uh, magazines. And that gave me an early lesson about the power of the internet and the power of the, the network and, uh, and let me understand, um, you know, what was going to happen, right? So then in 94, 95, I helped start a company called EDOC, which was servicing the scientific technical medical community. And we actually put the journal, journal Nature online. We, we worked with the journal Science. We worked with a bunch of publishers, including uh, Wiley and Springer and all of the kind of major scientific publishers um, who were scared to death about how the internet and the web was going to cannibalize their revenue. And we actually helped to produce some of the first paywalls for those types of publications so that they could uh, be a little bit more confident about putting their publications online full text mm. and so that was also an interesting um, and what's the biggest lesson learned from those those days of, of, of your your early sort of entrepreneurial venture was it you know such a probably a, a, a painful experience to try to sell some of these brands in, in sort of a migration onto a new platform and maybe that experience is similar to what any new startup that creates a new platform has with trying to get people to join its new platform new format I, I, I think I've seen that same that same set of problems replicated many times you know be it in mobile uh, be it in the rise of social platforms um, so companies are always concerned about are we gonna, are they going to jeopardize their existing revenue streams are they going to jeopardize uh, their existing business and in fact they have uh, that holds companies back from innovation very often which is exactly the door uh, that startups need to be opened uh, in order to in order to build those innovative products and ideas and, and to jump in there and solve those solutions that, that, that big corporates are not able to, to yeah. really think That's about. actually a very pressing point to the to what we're going to talk about a little bit later, which is having open data and mm -hmm. how companies could leverage their open data. So we'll, we'll touch upon that in a little bit. But mm -hmm. but um, if, if you had if, if, if you had a, a founder here in the room with you that was starting a platform 
um, that was going to go through the same challenges that you went through? What advice would you give them in terms of how to approach and how to convince um, these brands to, to, to use this new platform? Well, I, th I think it's about demonstrating thought leadership as much as anything else. So the, um, the advantage that we had in the mid-90s was that uh, there was an existence proof. There were a lot of publishers not actually publishers, but scientists and doctors and people like that, people in academia who were already embracing the internet yeah. and embracing the web as a, as a means of communication. Mm -hmm. And the publishers were worried about the internet disintermediating uh, them, basically, and uh, which to a certain extent has happened. And that um, argument uh, or that debate still goes on really in the kind of academic publishing world about which which we now call open access or open access to data mm -hmm. but in fact the fear that the internet would completely disintermediate uh, scientific publishers and uh, get rid of that whole sector was not really founded we still have many scientific publishers there's still a need for peer review there's still a need for all that kind of stuff so so the 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 trick is to find a way to encourage the adoption of that new technology or of that disruptive technology, but in a way that helps, that gives those companies, those more established companies, an on-ramp to using it um, that doesn't disrupt their, doesn't, doesn't completely disrupt what they're doing um, already. Cool. So what happened right after that then? So, so I, I ended up working for thestreet.com in New York, um, and then I ended up coming over here in 99 to lead as CTO of the street.co.uk, um, and then we had the dot-com bust, and I got stranded over here. So that's so it's a nice, it's a nice, <laughs> nice place to be stranded. It was nice, because in fact, what was going on in London at that time was that there was a lot of innovation happening in the mobile space. Um, and when I went and talked to people in the U.S. about mobile and mobile internet, they really gave me a blank look, like, what the heck are you talking about? People over here already got it, even though the phones and the devices were already, uh, were still quite um, rudimentary. I mean, we just had the first color web phones coming out in 2002, that kind of thing. Yeah. But um, already you could see the potential of how you can engage with people across multiple digital touch points throughout their day, be it... Um, and we were talking in 2001 about multimodal application development and design, which um, could engage with where you could have a single application that engages with customers across multiple touch points throughout their day, um, be it on the phone, be it on the PC, be it on digital television. And now that's kind of common, commonplace thinking. At the time, it was very kind of um, mm. new, new ideas. So. Okay. And then, so what, what role did you then take within this, with that scope? So at Vis-a-Vis, -vis, I helped to launch uh, what became Vodafone Live, mm -hmm. um, which was a kind of a mobile services portal mm -hmm. uh, that, was, that, that became part of Vodafone. Um, and that led me to working on a lot of different technologies and cross-industry things like the .mobi top-level domain, for instance, that were all aimed at um, making better content, making the mobile web and the mobile internet a better platform for content developers and mm -hmm. bringing more content developers and service developers and, app and developers in general mm -hmm. um, to, to that kind of area. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that kind of I experienced, because that's roughly when we met back in like maybe 2006 or so. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. It's, you know, the, the, 
that every any any new platform that gets launched is usually an iteration of the early adopters who then you know love it, but the actual variant of it that gets implemented for the long tail can sometimes be quite different than what was envisaged. But it's, but your background and some of the work that you did before and then also at, at Vodafone, you've almost always been like a year or two um, aware of what's going to happen, right? Like, And so now with kind of where you are right now, maybe you can walk us through kind of what's happened since then and some of the ideas that you have that perhaps, you know, uh, we had... Um, Martin Vortsovsky, uh from Phone speaking at a Seedcamp event maybe like four years ago, and he said one, one quote that really kind of stuck in my mind. He said, uh, wherever it is that you are right now, the rest of the world will be there five years later. And it's because of the, the sort of the world that we live in. And to some extent, you're even six, you know, maybe what Dan Applequist lives is six years later, right? So, <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious to, to hear kind of, um, kind of what happened after your time at, at Vodafone, but also in terms of kind of how that has now, that pattern of, of sort of future thinking has represented itself in your mind. So I, it's true, I've been, I have had a little bit of a curse in my career that I've gotten involved in things like two to three years ahead of when they become cool, yeah. right? Which means that, um, so for instance, uh, the Blue Via work that I went to Telefonica uh, yeah. to, start, to lead the product team for, um, was all about uh, telco APIs or putting an uh, APIs platform into a, into a telco um, and understanding how that could work. Um, I think we were early, we were too early, right? I think if you, we actually tried to do that again now, we might be more successful uh, yeah. in that. And that was 2011, 2012 timeframe. Like today, one of the companies... Um, presenting on stage at the seed camp event here was a api change log right which like a whole company that's based just around helping api providers manage the change process that's a great that that kind of thing could uh would have been such a hard sell in 2011 but now there are so many apis out there it's almost ubiquitous um, kind of thing so uh, so, uh, you know, what another way that I've kind of gotten involved in very early stage uh, stuff or early, I wouldn't say early stage, but like, you know, pre-commercial activities, right, is by running events like Over the Air. So uh, Over the Air, with minor plug, which is going to be running on 25th and 26th of September uh, and St. John's Hoxton, overtheair.org, um, is a free a hackathon event that we've been running for the past like seven years. For three years that we were at Imperial College. Uh, we started in 2008, I think, and uh, then for three years we were uh, at uh, Bletchley Park. Um, so, for instance, at some of those very early events that we had, actually, I think it was 2007. Um, this was before this was before iPhone really came out and, and made a big impact. I mean, iPhone was just coming out around that time, um, but we had somebody presenting on stage uh, a hack that they built overnight that used the accelerometer on the phone as a way to, as a game controller for a sword fighting game. Mm. Now that like use of the accelerometer in a game context, if I tell you that right now as a game developer, you're going to say, well, of course people do that all the time. Well, people weren't doing that all the time in 2007, right? Because yeah. nobody had ever seen that before. Yeah. Um, and there was no clear commercial win there. But we, uh, so at Over the Air, we have gotten involved and we've kind of promoted and championed um, 
people to have a play with technology that could become commercial in a couple of years' time. So another example of that is that at Bletchley Park a few years ago, we, we ran a whole bunch of s sessions around uh, Internet of Things. Yeah. So we had um, uh, the embed platform come out um, and um, provide a bunch of embed uh, boards uh, to people to pro to build prototypes with. One of the things that came out of that was uh, a textable doorknob, which you know was quite uh, a fun kind of idea. Um, but now we've seen a lot of Kickstarter camp, uh, projects that are actually in the, in the past couple of years that are doing exactly that, that they're trying to reinvent the, the, the door lock. Yeah. Um, so early on, you know, we saw some evidence of how IoT technologies can help, can um, kind of impact people's lives or can become yeah. a ubiquitous part of people's lives, yeah. replacing ubiquitous things that are already, that they already use, but, but making them connected, yeah. you know, door locks, etc. cetera. Yeah. Um, uh, so IoT is one of those areas that I still think uh, has a lot of ways to go. It's very yeah. early days and we still haven't seen, we're, we're starting to see some key products come out and some key yeah. initiatives come out. So Nest has been one early uh, thing. Yeah. Now we have a whole bunch of different kinds of uh, light bulbs and we have the concept of home hubs yeah. and the idea of connecting all of your devices together. Um, there's a company that I'm working with at Wira called NCube, yeah. um, which is trying to do that and trying to trying to, and we and we're seeing initiatives from Apple around home um, yeah. home network home networking. So there's a lot of interesting stuff happen there happening there, and I think as in many cases, the tussle, the the fight or the the debate is about about data, about privacy, about access to information. Um, so how these services these services will be differentiating or will be able to differentiate based on some of those um, aspects which brings me to a second kind of area of, of technology that I think is really coming up and I'm seeing a lot of startups just entering this space right now and that's something that I call privacy enabling technology right so we've seen a lot it's not just about privacy from a perspective of um, I should say the whole Snowden thing has put privacy into the public eye in a very interesting way. But there's more to privacy than people protecting themselves from government snooping, right? There's a whole element of understanding what your commercial privacy is and what the privacy of your data is, how your data that you produce throughout the day is being used. Um, whether or not your data is being monetized without your meaningful knowledge or consent. So there's a lot are of... You, are you getting a cut for that matter? Exactly. Or are you getting a cut? Uh, are you getting a fair share, a fair deal, uh, any quid pro quo for the data that you're producing? Very often not. Yeah. Um, and there are a lot of companies that are out there that are, that are kind of entering that space now. Um, and as well, because privacy... Another privacy-enabling technology is greater encryption. So we've seen a lot of new messaging plays come in, um, such as uh, the Telegram organization out of, out of Berlin, or um, uh, Wire, for instance, which is another yeah. Berlin messaging. It's a lot of a lot of privacy-related companies in Berlin. You know, yeah. this is a bit of a, 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 a culture thing there. But um, th those. So, so there's a lot of interesting stuff happening there and innovation happening there around people protecting their privacy and not only that, but people leveraging their open data, their, yeah. sorry, their personal data yeah. in more beneficial ways or getting more visibility 
of how their data is being collected and how their data is being used. And I think we haven't seen the end of that. That's just starting now. Yeah. Okay. So then data and open data is the third thing that I wanted to mention. And um, so I'm working with the Open Data Institute, uh, full disclosure, um, on helping them to build their startup program. Um, I roll there as startup ambassador. Uh, and I so one of the things that we're doing actually together is we're putting together a um, seed camp event on open data which is happening on October 9th if you want to go October oh, October 9th that's right <laughs> um, and you can find out more information by going on the seed camp website and looking under events there um, another a uh, couple of things that we're working on there are there's a seat there is a uh, ODI startup program which uh, is providing kind of in-kind support for startups, uh, again, equity-free, it's not an equity uh, arrangement, but by uh, joining and by being selected as part of the ODI startup program, you get a space, you get access to uh, expertise, you get um, access to networking, you get events, you get all kinds of stuff. Um, and the other thing that we're working on is something called the Open Data Incubator for Europe, or ODYNE. Mm -hmm. Um, and if you go to the Guardian website today and you search for Odine, um, you will find our announcement of the first list of uh, European winners for that. And that is granting uh, startups, again, equity-free, up to 100K euros, um, who are early-stage companies that are working with open data. So the Open Data Institute itself, just to roll back for a second, was set up by Sir Tim Berners-Lee, um, and it's a partially government-funded, partially funded by corporate sponsors. Uh, so uh, Thomson Reuters is one sponsor, for instance. We've just had SAP join, um, and Telefonica has been a sponsor as well, a company that I was at previously. Um, and basically, it is encouraging the adoption and the use of open data and encouraging the mindset shift towards thinking about data in an open way. Mm -hmm. So I believe that open data is as much or can be as much of a business enabler as open source is. If you think about how open source is impacted, yeah. how businesses run, um, it's uh, created ways in which you can build technology that um, that make things a lot easier. It's basically, mm -hmm. you know, uh, created uh, tools and techniques and a whole community around how people build applications, especially web applications, yeah. um, where the whole tool chain is open source that people are using. And then you look, take a look at browsers, which are also open source. And so if you take a look at the web as an ecosystem, it's very strong on the open source side of things. Um, open data is about thinking about data in that same way. So governments have been very keen on releasing open data. So you've got things like data.gov, data.gov.uk, the London Data Store, the World Bank has also released a bunch of data as open data and continues to release that data as open data. And again, that's um, part of kind of building the ecosystem. But also, but what we're what we're looking to do now is to encourage uh, corporates and startups to adopt those same techniques and ideas mm. um, so they could first of all be building their application on top of open data so if you want to take you know a very simple example could be a wayfinder within uh, london uh, wayfinder application where you want to get from point a to point b uh, can use open data which is produced by transport for london tfl um, and 
in order to find you know bus schedules yeah. and tube schedules and outages and all that kind of Which stuff. Which is slightly different than what a city mapper does currently. But but one of the things that I wanted to sort of touch upon, um, and one of the things that I've always sort of admired about you, Dan, is <laughs> is that you've always been able to sort of see things before they 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 sort of they become a trend in in terms of like the origins of it, right? So. Um, platforms, whether it be um, on the web or whether it be mobile or whether it be APIs, you know, you've always had that sort of visionary view. But that's also given you a unique perspective, which is the difference between when something becomes aware to you and when people start implementing it in its real use case and its real established form. Yeah. And there's that weird two-year gap yeah. where that's well, hashed that's out, right? Well, often writ- written about, yes. Two or yes, three, right? Yes. <laughs> and so right now we just heard kind of three different areas that you really feel are ripe for a new wave of innovation, right? We've talked about IoT, uh, we've talked about privacy and how people are becoming increasingly conscious about privacy, perhaps even monetizing it. Right. And then we're also talked about open data. And yes, there's like very um, obvious uh, use cases for open data today, but they're not necessarily always the most useful for an end user to the point where you can say, you can attribute that open data allowed you to have a new experience that previously wasn't. Yeah. So if, you, if we take those three and using your experience in the past of how something ends up looking, even though it starts off with all these other sort of little nascent components, what is the big, and this is probably a tricky question, maybe there's no right answer to it, but it's like, what is, the, what is that weird thing that happens in the middle where this stuff gets hashed out and then there's a new use case that fundamentally changes the way everybody thinks about that technology? You know, think about what um, what fintech was and now is. Think about you know what WAP and mobile browsing was, which is what you know <laughs> Steve Jobs enabled with killing. So if yeah, I mean, I can I can I can give you. So what immediately comes to mind when you're when you were saying that was actually the WAP and mobile browsing case, right? Yeah. So for years, uh, you know, I started something in 2005 called the Mobile Web Initiative with W3C, where we were promoting uh, the use of mobile browsing. The that we were promoting. Uh, app developers to get it to build mobile uh, friendly websites. We're doing all kinds of stuff. Um, But the common wisdom in the industry was people don't use this. Nobody's going to type a URL into their brow into their phone on their browser. Nobody knows how to do it. Right. Um, Nobody wants to use this. This is not my wife will never you people, you know, in this industry try, you know, like it or not tend to use like their spouses as like the, 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 a stalking horse, sort of, for the, uh, yeah. for, the, for, the, for the normal person. That or my mother-in-law, right? And I'm, yeah. I'm guilty of this, too. I, I yeah. use both of those relentlessly. My kids as well. Yeah. But So I'll give you an example that involves my kids, right? So we have been agonizing about how, oh, nobody knows how to use the mobile browser. Nobody is going to ever use, you know, normal people are not ever going to use this, right? And then I brought home the iPhone. I remember this very clearly in 2007. I brought home the iPhone and um, and I kind of gave it locked to my daughter, who was then three years old, did not know how to you know really read or anything like that, right? But uh, and I said, well, what what would you do with it, right? So immediately, based on, only on the iconography on the screen, she unlocked it, went to the browser, went to the URL bar, and started typing a URL into the phone, mm-hmm. right? Like you know, this is. So that's a moment when I knew 
this whole industry had just changed, right? Because we had made it so easy to type a URL into a phone. Like she didn't know what she was typing, but she knew that that's what you did in order to get to a website. So yeah. I, I guess, I guess that, maybe it's tapping into people's intrinsic understanding of something. So like, for example, well, I'm, what I'm talking about is user experience and, and, and making, I think user experience is, is one of those key enablers, right? And that's what, that's why I think Apple have had such a strong um, track record, for instance, in bringing new technologies that have, that people have dismissed um, as being too cumbersome or too crazy or whatever to market because they have been able to wrap those technologies in a, in a great mm. user experience. I think Apple Watch is another good example, yeah. for instance, where they're uh, catalyzing the industry by showing what a good user experience of a wearable can be. Mm. That it's not it, that it's not about techie. It's not about engaging with people who, yeah. in the techie mindset who already want to know what what level of Bluetooth is on my device, and yeah. you know, oh, I, you know, like the the whole thing with Apple Watch is you pair it using a completely visual experience. You don't have to go into a sub-menu and say, mm. enable Bluetooth and all that kind of stuff. It's all done for you, right? Mm. If, you, if you have to go into a menu and say, enable Bluetooth, you're, you've lost. You've right? lost it. Yeah. Right? So, so getting the... So I don't, I don't know how that is instructive to the startup community. Well, it is. Because let me, let me now play with what you've given me and improvise on the three things that you mentioned, IoT, privacy, and open data. Mm -hmm. For example, privacy, every time I had a chat the other day on iMessage um, with a friend of mine, they wanted me to use WhatsApp. I referenced <laughs> to them that WhatsApp has been the lowest ranked app in terms of user privacy. And yes. I was encouraging them to use Telegram, which is up there in the yes. higher ones. And their response was, well, I don't care about my data being used. Like, I'm, I have nothing yes. to hide, right? Yeah, yeah, well, that's the classic I have nothing to hide thing, right, right. And if, you, yeah. if we use your model of kind of what WAP was, it's like, well, I have nothing to browse or I will never use this browser on my web. Yes. Yeah. If I were to take that analogy, what the user experience that Apple brought to mobile browsing that made it so that it was easy, I think perhaps what you're then implying is for these three topics, with privacy as an example, the moment when I'm engaging with a company where privacy and its awareness of my privacy and the use of my data and how that data is going to be used third parties becomes apparent to me in a way that it's inevitable that I'm going to have an opinion on it, Yes. then that's the time that the technology has arrived and it has become uh, part and parcel of the infrastructure that we I use. I think that's exactly right. And at that time, the person who's having that, making that connection might not be thinking about it in those terms. They might not be thinking about it in terms of, I'm protecting my privacy now, right? Mm -hmm. But rather, they might be thinking about it in terms of like, oh, I'm getting a good deal, for instance, right? So instead of um, you being silently tracked as you walk around a retail space, mm -hmm. um, as in the kind of iBeacon model, um, how about you're, you're able to make use of location-aware data um, location-based data rather within an interior space or within a retail space um, to give you more information about how you're uh, what, what you're shopping on and and that provides you not only with greater visibility of your of how your information is being used which is a kind of privacy uh, or a privacy yeah. enabling technology right because then you can opt out very yeah. easily and you can't opt out when you're being silently tracked yeah. um, so that's a that's a, that's a dichotomy that's playing yeah. out right now in the beacons area because you've got the Apple beacons approach, the iBeacons yeah. approach versus the Google physical web approach, right? And the physical yeah. web thing is much more about surfacing uh, yeah. data to you. 
Um, whereas the the beacons, the whole idea, the whole beacons thing is yeah. more about like silently and without really your meaningful consent, figuring out what you've been doing, yeah. right? And and I think it's people people will grab as the thing that will get people to gravitate towards the more privacy enabling technology is the yeah. user experience of oh this act this actually has a lot of utility for me, yeah. Right? Um, and how about how about you know we talked about UX as an enabler to take something that's very nascent and sort of ahead of its time to then becoming an established thing and we use the privacy as an example of that but how about having to have other ecosystem players make that a possibility and I'll use example for legal documentation mm -hmm. uh, in the creative commons creative commons um, is a, a great initiative to help people understand very clearly and very easily how their content can be used and digital rights and digital exactly. rights right yes, yeah and do you think that privacy for example in this example you've given us of sort of location and going around needs to have a third party uh, exist first as a precursor to that being possible that delineates what level of privacy is standard so that means that my app says Carlos, you want to opt into being tracked? Great. Which level opting in would you like? Opt in that is less useful to you, but is going to be discarded the moment you walk out the door, or somewhat more useful, but medium we keep, and we keep this, this, and this, in the way that Facebook currently does, like, mm -hmm. you want to send this, this, this information? And does that need to be centralized the way that Creative Commons does it, or it proposes a framework, or can it be decentralized the way that Facebook does it to some extent, but up to the entire, up to the, the actual platform or the actual app to do, but then confusing the user experience a little bit more because there is no standard. What, what do you so, think? Well, but Mozilla a couple of years back pr proposed something called privacy icons, which was the, the idea there was to develop a standard iconography around how data is collected and used um, online. Uh, that didn't get a lot of traction. Um, I would say, I'm personally a big fan of Creative Commons, mm. right? But I would also say making a comparison to Creative Commons when you are trying to think about what is mainstream, Creative Commons is not mainstream, right? It's yeah. well known to people in the digital age, but, um, or in the digital industry, yeah. right? And if you're, especially if you're a content producer, if you're a professional photographer or something like that, then you're very keenly aware of Creative Commons and rights issues and stuff like that. Yeah. And when I've set up my blogs for my kids, I have been very like adamant to like give them, to kind of walk them through the Creative Commons licensing process and yeah. teach them about that. So I think that it's an essential part of media literacy, yeah. but it's not something that uh, I would say is, is mainstream it, maybe, enough. Maybe it's not the know? perfect example, but the, the, the question still stands, which is, do you think that this evolution in UX, especially for privacy as an example, requires a third party to be the, the sort of the certification authority of the different levels of privacy? Or do you think that ultimately with new platforms, it gets hashed out at the per platform basis? I think that it should be, a, there should be a common language that we use to describe privacy and that we use to describe data collection. Mm. And the problem is, is that very often that language right now is forced on us by regulatory. Mm. Um, so in Europe, we have the data protection laws, which talk about data producers and data controllers and mm. data managers and all this kind of thing. And, and so when you're actually working with data, you end up using those terminologies, which are completely uh, meaningless to most people, real people. Um, only means something in, in the legal terms and then when you start to talk about data only in those legal terms then you're you're dealing in, in abstract you're dealing in something that, that is apart from the user experience of, yeah. of the system that you want to use when when you ask people about 
privacy in a social media context, they're more likely to tell you about, well, I made sure that when I posted a picture of my kid online, I only checked that my friends could see it on Facebook, right? Yeah. Um, so I think, but that, but those types of things are very platform specific. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I do think that there could be a, a need for a standard set of privacy principles, but privacy is such a contentious issue right now. Um, one of the things that I've found is that uh, I think there's a because it's a little facile, but but there 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 is sort of a disconnect between the Silicon Valley mentality and the European yeah. mentality on privacy. So I very often, unfortunately, heard people, entrepreneurs, whatever people in Silicon Valley um, land, uh, speaking disparagingly about the European privacy model, as if kind of it's broken or that uh, that Europe has it wrong on privacy, and and you know. Live maybe I'm biased because I live here, but I think it's the other way around. I think you know the European awareness of privacy is something that I would like to see more. Um, I would I'd like to see your uh, Silicon Valley companies you know, take that on board more. And actually, we've seen things like Apple uh, touting privacy and touting greater encryption as being one of their key differentiators, right? And we don't. Uh, we don't care about your data, uh, as Tim Cook said. You know, we're, you, your data, your health data stays on the phone. We're not, we're not bringing it up to the cloud and monetizing it, that kind of thing. So they're clearly making a differentiation there uh, between them and, and Google about how they use health data, that kind of thing. So there's, so there's an interesting dynamic going on there. I, yeah, to, but to come back to your question, I think, I think the industry could benefit from a common terminology on mm. privacy, but some of these questions are so... Because they hit the bottom line of advertising networks, of advertisers. I yeah. mean, I've seen blood spilled uh, on numerous occasions around things like the Do Not Track standard. So I was involved in the creation of the Do Not Track standard in, in W3C. Yeah. Um, and that process ended up really causing some people to have um, nervous breakdowns because of all of the kind of stop energy that advertising uh, trade associations were throwing at it because they didn't want to see, a, and they still don't want to see, a standardized way for people to tell, uh, that an enforced mechanism for people to tell advertising networks to stop tracking them. They don't want that to have any teeth at all, and they certainly don't want to have any regulatory uh, teeth behind it. And so that's why we still don't have a, def a definite yeah. do not track. Uh, standard, and that's the kind of example of how things can kind of go south in the yeah. privacy. But it's not, I mean, if I use the Apple example for web browsing standards, you know, you were busy with W3C trying to get all the standards getting running. Apple came in and quickly said, you know what, no flash, no flash, this mm -hmm. is what it's going to look like, and it killed it. So yes. maybe it takes an, a large organization to really spearhead something and actually catalyze it into I, its final form. I think that's a very apt analogy. I think yeah. that's, that's, that's very possible. Yeah. Cool. Well, um, it was glad. It was, it was, I'm glad that you, you came and, and you spent some time with us and, and, and giving some thoughts on, on sort of what we can expect in the future. Uh, and hopefully we will have an amazing uh, representation of these three technologies of IoT, privacy and open data in the coming years. And for those of you that are listening and want to come to the event that's up in October 9th, uh, just go to our website and you can check that out. And you can meet Dan in person. And until next time, guys, thanks.